You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. I invite you to take out your uh, note sheets uh, to follow along with me today. I want to begin by asking, what exactly was the sin at Babel? It's a famous story. We all know everyone had the same language. They got together, they tried to build a big tower, and God stopped it by confusing their language and scattered them. But even if you, you pay close attention to the text, it's, it's not exactly clear what they were doing wrong. I mean, is it because they built a city and God doesn't like cities? I mean, Cain built the first city, right? Well, no, God eventually identifies himself with a city and says his name's going to dwell in Jerusalem. And, and the whole outcome of this thing is the new Jerusalem, a city. So God seems okay with cities. What about unity? I mean, they were all working together and God really hates it when we cooperate. No, that's obviously not it. God likes unity. Pretty big on that. Is it because they wanted to build a tower with its top in the heavens? That, that sounds a little more ominous, right? But towers aren't evil. And in Hebrew, the word heavens could just mean sky. So a tower with its top in the sky could just be another way of saying tall tower. And God doesn't seem to mind tall towers. There's quite a few of them in the world that haven't been toppled. So it's not exactly clear what, that that's the problem. One scholar says, well, no, the problem was that they settled down. They settled in the, in the land of Shinar, and, and God had told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they were refusing to do what God had said of filling the earth. The problem with this is that, that moving from point A to point B doesn't make the world any more full. It just means that you're not in point A anymore, right? You fill the earth not by moving around, but by having babies, right? Be fruitful and multiply. That's how you fill the earth. Okay, so it, it's not that they, they, there's no command for them to constantly be nomads and they're not allowed to settle down. Probably the, the most classic answer is, well, they were prideful, right? They wanted to make a name for themselves and not be scattered. They used their new technology, brick and mortar. But if you think about it, making a name for yourself and not being scattered aren't in themselves all that evil. I mean, how many of you would like to be at least thought of well by your community? So that when they hear the name Sappington, they don't all cringe and think, ugh, get away from that guy. No, I mean, having a name that people know and respect is not an evil thing. In fact, having a name that is the product of you and what you've done, the choices you've made, rather than, say, maybe what your dad did or your mom didn't do, right? It's kind of nice that when, if people know us, they know us according to what we've done and the choices we've made. So having a name, making a name for yourself, isn't itself intrinsically evil, nor is wanting to stick together. Not be, being scattered in a world that has no civilization, that's death sentence, Right? Sticking near your family, how many of you like to be near your family? Nothing wrong with that. So as we reflect on each of these, it's, it's kind of hard to say, well, what exactly were they doing wrong? It's a, clearly a judgment story, right? They're doing something, God sees it, he stops it, and he gives them the opposite. But why? Now, we've been going through chapters 1 through 11 as the, the framework of the entire biblical story, the story of stories. And what the case I've been making through all of this is that it's one, it's setting the stage for the entire grand narrative. And I want to sum it up with your first blank, that the story of stories is the grand narrative of how the creator, who is eternal triune love, how he comes to dwell with his mutinous image-bearing human creatures. How he comes to dwell 
with his mutinous image-bearing creatures. See, because we know God, who is eternal community, who is love within himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates the world in order to share that love and community with others, right? Who can participate in it. And so he creates human beings who are gifted with his image and can speak and name stuff and organize the world. And making bricks is a great example of tilling the earth and subduing it, right? Turning dust into stones and building stuff. That's great. But we also know that human beings were led by sin to, well, mutiny, to rebel against God and to try to be like God by knowing good and evil. They had tried to, instead of ruling under God and following him, they tried to rule autonomously. But of course, they were enslaved to this dark power of evil and sin, and enslaved so much that they continually cascade into the world more and more evil and death and chaos. The first children murder, son, brother murders brother. And the world is polluted so thoroughly that everyone's thinking and intending evil at all the times. And so God gives the world over to its own chaos and destroys it with a flood, except for one family. And now the descendants of this one family are spreading out and starting again. They're building a city. They're People migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So if we're going to answer our question, what exactly were they doing wrong? We need to to think about our context a little bit. Moses is here talking to the Israelites who were raised in Egypt. And he's telling them a story that they're not immediately going to understand. They've been in Egypt for a long time. They are not going to know much about what's going on in Babylon. So he has to explain to them how, well, Egypt's got lots of rocks and stones that were used to build pyramids. Not so in Babylon, in, in what will be called Babel, right? They just have mud and rivers. So what do they do? They make their own rocks. Okay, that's pretty good. But, but what about, what is a tower in the region of Babel? What does that bring to your mind? Well, if you said, well, if, some, if the Egyptians were to build a tower, you'd instantly think, well, it's probably a pyramid, right? That's their biggest pointy structure that goes up into the heavens. But what about Babylonians? There were quite a few towers in ancient Babel, and they were called ziggurats. They were pyramid-like structures, but instead of uh, triangular shapes like pyramids, they were like boxes stacked on one another, smaller and smaller and smaller, like a layered cake. And what's important to recognize is that, that a Babylonian ziggurat has a very different purpose than a pyramid. A ziggurat has the purpose of, well, being a staircase from heaven to earth. They made them by, by making mud, normal mud bricks, and they'd frame it, they'd fill it with dirt, and then they'd put a nice veneer of, 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 of kiln-fired brick, which is a very expensive process to make these. And they would do these because these structures were of immense significance. And I learned this as I was studying this. I always assume, okay, well, it's a tower with its top in the heavens. It's a ziggurat. The goal is to go up there and then have the power of the gods. It's like a repetition of Eden, right? Seize the power of gods. But that's actually a misunderstanding of how Babylonians thought about the role of their ziggurats. There were like 17 of these in, in their city in the ancient world. The point of a ziggurat was not to bring humans up into the divine. The role was to be staircases by which the gods would descend to earth. And this is importantly different. At the top of a ziggurat was a shrine called the Gate of the Gods, through which the gods would come. The temple was at the bottom of the ziggurat. It was where the gods were worshipped, where there would be an image of the gods that the people would make sacrifices to, would care for. 
They would try to um, get the gods to be on their side by the way they cared for their temple. So in other words, what a ziggurat was, was an attempt to get God to serve the city it's built in. In the Wild West, uh, before the age, as they're building the railroads, right, it's a big deal in the 1800s, there were towns that would, would hear about the building of the railroad, and they'd know it, see, it was a couple miles off, and they'd pick up their whole town, and they'd move their whole town to be right next to the railroad, and they'd build a railroad platform so that when the iron horse came, it would bring its economic blessings to their town. That's what a ziggurat was. It was a train station for the gods. It was something they built to the city so that the gods would come and bless that city and be served by that city and respond to that city's wishes and legitimate that city. In other words, a ziggurat is a tool for domesticating God. That's the real sin at Babel. The sin of Babel was their attempt to domesticate God. They built a tower to bring God and his blessings under their control, where their sacrifices and their prayers and their rulers could claim to have their protection, that, the God's protection. Uh, okay, so earlier this week, my wife was teaching my kids about how to make presentations and speak publicly. And she had them do this by making a kind of nature video like Wild Kratz. And they were teaching the viewer about um, the dog, our, our Thelma, our dog. And part of this was explaining what a domesticated animal is. And Eloise's job was to read off the list of domesticated animals. And so she's pointing to her little chart, and she's like, well, dogs and cats and spiders and birds. I was like, well, hold on, hold on a second. Spiders are not domesticated animals. But they live in your house, right? Well, well, being domesticated is a little bit bigger than just living in your house. I mean, spiders, I mean, it's true. Some people do keep spiders in terrariums. But it's also true that if the spider had the chance, it would kill you. It would eat you because it's a spider. I mean, if you, if you cage a bear and put it in your living room, that does not make it a domesticated animal, right? I, I mean, people also keep snakes as pets. And this does, I heard a story about a guy who, who really had misunderstood this deeply. He liked to, he had a, a boa constrictor and he would sleep with it. He would let it sleep in his bed with him. And a couple nights until, until he woke up a couple nights and the snake was stretched out along the full length of his body just, just sitting there, kind of creepily. And he, like, he thought that was very weird. And then it happened again. And a few, little while later, it happened again. And he, he finally talked to his veterinarian about this. And the vet said, the snake is sizing you up to see if you'll fit in its belly. <laughs> because a domestic animal, a domesticated animal, isn't someone that simply lives in your home or dwells with you. It is one who, through breeding or through training, has come under your control. And you can trust that it's not going to tear your throat out. It's become a tool or a companion. So even chickens and horses, those are domesticated animals, not because they live in our homes, but because they've come under our control, right? And we can use them, they're useful. So when I say that Babylonians were trying to domesticate God, I mean that they were trying to make a safe, God, turn God into a safe, controllable, and powerful tool for securing their place and significance in the world. They were trying to use God and get a little bit of his power as a tool to make a name for themselves and to keep themselves from being scattered. That's what Babel's goal is. It's a ziggurat that is designed to make God predictable and controllable, to harness the divine power and use it to build a city, a state. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, this is the opposite of the rebellion of Eden, right? In Eden, humans try to be like God by knowing good and evil. But here, we try to make God like ourselves. 
We try to make God someone with whom we can barter, someone with whom we can exchange, someone who we can know and understand and use in order to build our homes. And this home is really the heart of the idea between having a name for yourself and not being scattered. It's a place where you are significant, right? It's your home. It's not simply a house. It's your home. And it's a place where you can come to that's a refuge. That's what they're seeking to get God to help them, well, to use God to make for themselves. And this is a universal temptation of human beings, to make God in our own image, to get him to work for our purposes and our plans. We domesticate God in a whole variety of ways. And I want to look at three of them today, because this is, this is it's, it could be its own fun series in itself. But one of the first ways we do this is we reroute God's power. We reroute God's power. We allocate his authority and his influence to other things that we want done. Now, this is most commonly done through history through the state, right? God's power is legitimated by our king. Rome did this in, in sterling colors, right? The Roman emperor was, Caesar was the son of a god. And if you, he was the one through whom the gods were ordering the universe rightly. And if you wanted to be on the side of the gods and their rightly ordered universe, you need to be rightly ordered to Caesar, Right? European nations, later, the, the kings would claim a divine right to their particular individual right to rule, right? So their right to, to be a king and get all the benefits and perks thereof was given by the gods, or by, well, in Christendom, God, right? Because we talked last year about the, the nature of Christendom. That is, the era of history where the culture and the state propped up the church and the church propped up the culture. Where it was this kind of homeostasis where they, they lived together in this mutually reinforcing and mutually dependent way. And it's this very idea that the role of the church is to prop up the state that's behind when the pilgrims come and want to make a city on a hill, a Christian nation in the new world. That was part of their goal. Another example of this is, is in the, the post-Civil War South. I mean, interesting question. A hundred years after the end of the war, segregation and society was still firmly shaped in the same way it was before the war. How was that? The Southerners had lost control of all their institutions. No government, no police force. They were under the Reconstruction domineering hand of the North. How did they maintain this, the mentality? Well, they didn't lose control of every institution. They kept control of the churches. And the churches continued to preach a racist view of society as God's will for human thriving. It continued to preach that God intended for blacks and whites to be separated and people to be properly subordinated. And it wasn't until the 1960s in the civil rights movement that this really came out to the fore. And I, this is a personal thing for me because I, I went to Liberty University, which is a school um, made by Jerry Falwell, senior. Um, and Jerry Falwell Sr. was a man I, I immensely respect. He, well, he preached to us a number of times a week. So we got to hear all sorts of fun stories. But one of the stories he told me that left a lasting imprint on me was how he talked about how he realized in this course of dealing with civil rights leaders, he realized that he had been preaching a racist view of the gospel. He had been using his office as a preacher to continue this, the, vision, the, the racist vision of society that he had been raised with. And he came to see this, and he repented of it. And he actually went and got in touch with... Um, uh, Jesse Jackson, and asked to go and speak to Jesse Jackson's church. And he publicly apologized and admitted, I have been a racist, and I repent, and I'm sorry. In front of all these people, admitting that he had tried to prop up something. He had, in other words, rerouted God's word to prop up a 
a segregationist idea of society. We do this as individuals, too, not just as states. We do this by, well, rewriting God through our particular political vision. Right? I was reading, a, a, another pastor sent me an article from The Atlantic recently, which was talking about the state of American Christianity in a very intensely divided moment. And it interviewed a pastor who said this. He says he's heard many congregants leaving their church because it didn't match their politics. But he has never once heard of someone changing their politics because it didn't match their church's teaching. And this pastor will tell his congregation, if the Bible doesn't challenge your politics, at least occasionally, then you're not really paying attention to it. But the reality this pastor laments is that a lot of people, especially in this era, will leave the church if their political views are ever challenged even around the edges. Let me, let me ask you this, put this a little different way. Who here knows all there is to know about the Bible and God's law? Great, me neither, me neither, right? So then let me ask, when was the last time that reading the Bible challenged your common sense? Challenged or corrected your assumptions about the way the world should be? When was the last time you, one of the people you voted for or one of the people you watch on TV said something and you thought, I don't think Jesus agrees with that? If you can't remember a time like that, then only one of two things is true. Either your common sense and your assumptions are a perfect reflection of God's law. Or you have recast your faith in the image of your politics. And you have made Jesus bow his knee to your political assumptions. This is the temptation of every believer in every political moment. It is the temptation to recast God, to reroute his power through our vision of how society should be. In other words, to protect our home. To make a name and a place for ourselves in this world and to use God's power to do it. This is not the only way we try to domesticate God. We also try to put him in our debt. This is your next one. We put God in our debt. In the ancient world and in uh, polytheistic, like Hinduistic nations today, you'll find people sacrificing to idols. They'll have an idol in their home and they'll put fruit in front of it to feed it, right? Or they'll offer blood sacrifices to this idol, right? And the expectation is really simple. I take care of you, you take care of me, right? I pray, I offer my thanksgiving, I give you fruit to, to chew on. So you take care of me and watch over my family. Now, I'm, I'm going to bet that none of you have a cross at home and you try to put bananas in front of it for Jesus to snack on. But we all have our own subtle ways of putting Jesus in our debt. We do it, well, the prosperity gospel does it in bold, flaming colors. That is, if you trust God by sending me money, then he will bless you. You do your part. You commit, take a step of faith and give more money and he will take care of you, right? He'll do, God does, you do your part and God does his part. This can get really subtle when we start talking about the gospel as something that we make happen. When we say that what really makes the difference is giving your life to Jesus or giving all the glory to God or surrendering your life completely to him or accepting him as your personal Lord and Savior or making a decision of faith. All of this puts us as the primary acting agents. We do our part and there God will do his part. We keep our promise so that God keeps his. It's a perennial temptation that never goes away. Because what it is at its root is an attempt to put God under our control. The final way, well, there's probably way more than this, but the last way I want to talk about is we dictate the terms of our relationship with God. We define the terms of the relationship. That is, we say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I love Jesus, but I don't want to be anywhere near his bride. She's the worst. I, don't want, I, I, have, I have no obligations to her. I have no obligations to that. No, no, no. Stay away. Right? 
I go to church on Sunday and leave the rest for the, well, my week to act completely according to myself. Lutherans have our own temptation of this, and I want to pick on Lutherans in particular because that's who we are, is that we sometimes are tempted to domesticate the sacraments. That is, we, we celebrate some amazing things. That in baptism, God comes and freely promises himself to us. He slaps his divine name on us and says it's there forever. In communion, we get the body and blood of Christ that unite us to one another and to God. These are amazing things. But whenever we, and we, and we also, we rightly celebrate that these gifts are received by faith alone. That's a wonderful thing. But sometimes we shout that while we ignore their consequences. We said we can get baptized without becoming part of a real church. We can claim our baptismal death with Christ, but not the resurrection newness of life. We can, we can die to sin, but not do the whole rising to newness of life thing. We can receive communion and celebrate the forgiveness that it gives, but we will steadfastly refuse to seek out and give forgiveness to those who've hurt us. See, our Lutheran temptation is domesticate the sacraments, to treat them like objects that are at our disposal and things that we can use, and we get to dictate the terms in which they work. So instead of instruments through which the living God comes and gives us stuff and creates a relationship of faith, they become divine knobs and levers that we twist at our will. So we can hopefully get God to dance to our tune. We domesticate, we neuter the sacraments when we divide them from their consequences. We preach faith without works, forgiveness without discipleship, word without spirit, death without resurrection. So we do this because it's nice. It's easier to keep God tucked away on Sunday morning, right? He, gets, he makes Monday a lot more messy. He makes Monday a lot more difficult. And so if we can keep him firmly tucked away on Sunday, he'll be safe and under our control. But the story of Babel makes absolutely clear that God has no intention of submitting himself to our control. He will not sit when we say sit, and he will not stay when we say stay. He is, as the Narnians know, not a tame lion. The Lord comes down to see the tower, and see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. It's crucial to understand what God sees, is that as long as humans have bound together in this project of usurping God's power and get God to do what they want, they will not stop. They will keep doing this, seeking their project to build for themselves a name and significance and make their home apart from and without him. And so he confuses their language, thwarts their project, and its end. And the ironic end of the story is that they went to build a temple so that they could make a name for themselves and not be scattered. And what happened? They didn't build a temple, and they did get a name. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord had confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them. They got a name, Babel, and they lost their home. Because God is God. God is God. He is the giver of place and significance. And he is free from all our attempts to control him. He is not manipulable. But precisely in his freedom, and this is the part that you, this is the other side of it. Precisely in God's freedom, he is free to be for us. He is free to be the giver of meaning and name and place, because he longs to do so. He longs to dwell with us, to give us our homes and to be our home. And so chapter 11 
is the final chapter in the beginning because it is setting the stage for chapter 12 when we meet the next phase in God's project of coming to dwell with human beings. Listen, as God begins this relationship with this resident of the Babel region, 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Thus the Babel story is the portrait of how humans attempt to domesticate God so that we can use his power for our purposes and in so doing miss what God is actually doing in the world to give us names, to give us places, and to give us homes. Because through Abraham, God is going to do just that. He's going to dislocate him and scatter him from his family and bring him to the land of Canaan. He's going to give him a name and a family that's going to grow into a whole nation of Israel. And he's going to give them their land back after they've been enslaved. He's going to give them a name that's known throughout the world with uh, righteous and able kings. And when they continue to rebel against him, he's finally going to come and live in the person of Jesus Christ and be here among us. That's the culmination of the story that begins in chapter 12. The story of story culminates in God making his home among us in Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the point of the whole thing. He does it in order to domesticate us. He does this in order to domesticate us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, God longs to reconcile himself to this world. When which sinful human beings are constantly at each other's throats. When we are the bears and the snakes and the spiders in the house of God. But he came and he sent Jesus to proclaim that God is king. This kingdom of God that is coming to earth. And it's a kingdom that is unlike any of our kingdoms, any of our cities, any of our towers. It's a kingdom that comes to us as a gift, simply by God's word, simply by God's promise. We have citizenship in heaven through the promise of Jesus, not through any of our accomplishments and not as a response to any of our accomplishments. And this kingdom is a kingdom that is not of this world. That is, it can never be aligned with any human nation or state or city, and it steadfastly refuses to use the tools of nations and states and cities. It is a nation that spreads and grows in its refusal to use violence, in its refusal to hold grudges, and in its praying for its enemies and in its turning of the other cheek. Because it is a kingdom that is not defined by space. It's a kingdom that embraces the whole world. A kingdom that is not united around a tower, but around a cross. And it is into this kingdom that Jesus invites you every day to trust that he is your king, that he has given you a place and a name, and that will keep you on this journey because you don't see your place yet, right? That new Jerusalem is not visible to any of us. And Jesus promises you that making you a citizenship, making you a citizen in his kingdom will make you able day by day to take up your cross and follow him, living as a sojourner and a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth. And he attaches to all of this a promise that when his city comes, when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven from God, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. When God's kingdom comes and God fully and completely dwells among us, you will not be a spider or a bear in the halls of eternity. You will be a son or a daughter, adopted into the family of God, bearing the name of Jesus Christ and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on your forehead. And you will be at home, at home, forever. Amen.
And may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ, our risen King. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.